Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross, riding solo this week and focusing on the Rio de Janeiro 500 final and the Doha final. Champions are Cameron Nori, who avenged his defeat to Carlos Alcaraz the week prior in Buenos Aires to win that one, and I believe his fifth career title, and Daniil Medvedev, who beat Andy Murray in the final. Uh, I think it's 16 or 17 for for Medvedev, but one of the crazy stats that I saw going around was that uh, Medvedev, all of his hardcourt titles, which are, again, I I believe 16 out of his 17 total titles. I think it's 16 hardcourt, 17 total. Um, I'll I'll check that real quick. Uh, They are all at different tournaments, every single one of them. Yeah, it's 17 titles. So 16 hardcourt titles at 16 different tournaments for for, uh, Daniil Medvedev. Um, Also, congratulations to Hubert Hercoc. He won in Marseille. Can't talk about every final. In fact, uh, it was a a kind of a tough weekend for me. And I I actually, when I can, I like to get this out on Sunday, my time, which will end up being Monday for a lot of you guys um, who are not in U.S. time zones. Uh, but Saturday I was pretty sick and just needed to rest. And then Sunday I was ready to go. Let's, let's do this thing. That's the day that I normally work on the show the most. And, uh, my power went out like all day. So I, I couldn't even watch the Rio final. I did absolutely nothing all day with no power. So, uh, that's, that was my, uh, my weekend. Um, let's get into this though. Let's start with, let's start with Rio. The Nori Alcaraz final. It's hard to not make that about the physical side of things. The schedule coming in, I mentioned they played the Buenos Aires final a week ago. So the breakdown is this. In Argentina, they played four matches in five days. Then they had one day in between. And then for Rio, which is a 500 event that doesn't give a bye to the top four seeds, Alcaraz and Nori ended up playing five matches in six days. So you put it all together, it's nine matches in 12 days. One of those three off days was a travel day, which never really feels like rest at all. Alcaraz is doing that coming back from injury. Having not played in forever. Yeah, he trained. It's never the same. Every single player says the same thing. Matches are different. You get more tired. You feel nerves and pressure, and it changes the entire physiology of 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 what it's like out there. So 
for Alcaraz to do that coming back from an injury, it would have been amazing if he actually managed to win back-to-back titles. Uh, and it's kind of understandable that physically there was a, a pretty big dip in this final. Uh, Carlitos's intensity was kind of up and down in the first half of the match where there were a lot of pretty wild fluctuations in what he was able to do on the court. And then at 3-all, he started to look uh, identifiably tired to me. And then very quickly by the end of the set, he went from looking tired to looking injured. So it, it it's almost... Uh, I don't have a great read on exactly what Carlitos was dealing with, to be completely honest with you, because he still hasn't pulled out of Acapulco. And it, it's really hard to say, was this just wear and tear from all the tennis? Was there more, is there more of an acute injury? Was it kind of some scare factor because he said he was feeling discomfort in the same area, the hamstring specifically in the same hamstring that suffered the the tear that put him out for a long time? And was he just needing to play it really, really safe because he was afraid that he was going to do something bad again? Uh, that's entirely possible. At the end of the day, it, it's pretty unclear to me. But what what is the case is that uh, he played the third set and the tail end of the second set with virtually no ability to really run. And uh, obviously when that happens, it's hard to look past that. But I, I do want to say this. Let's give some credit to Nori in this respect. First of all, he was dealing with the same schedule that Alcaraz was dealing with. Yeah, he wasn't coming off of an injury, but it was the same schedule. And Nori is just extremely well-equipped to handle that. We've seen that throughout his career. It's a guy who's played over 75 matches for two years in a row now without any interruptions that I can remember due to injury. And he's doing all of this with a extremely physical style. No injuries, tons of matches, physical style. It hasn't mattered for Cam Nori. He's been able to be durable, stay healthy. And as a result, he should win titles in his career as a result of his durability and his stamina. This kind of thing should happen a couple of times in his career where he is in a final against a guy who is struggling to deal with the rigors of some certain schedule uh, circumstances and Nori dealing with the same kind of thing is able to withstand it. So it's not as if it's undeserved in any way. It's a very well-deserved win for Cam Nori, and I feel like he deserved to celebrate. I know that he got some 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 internet bashing for the celebration in some corners. I I don't really agree with that. I think he worked very hard, and his opponent in Carlos Alcaraz was competing hard and dangerous, even without any legs, which kind of brings me to the next thing I want to say on the physical part of this. It was pretty special to see Alcaraz try to win without his legs because obviously he had to rely completely on his racket talent and his offense in attempt to not play any D. So extremely aggressive uh, returning, uh, tons of variety offensively to try to finish points as quickly as possible. And he's so talented that... <laughs> He made a lot happen. He made a lot of magic happen without his legs. That's for sure. So that was pretty interesting to watch. And I mean, you can just tell by the scoreline and bad job by me having uh, not said it yet. Alcaraz did make the third set 
uh, very competitive. It was ended up being final score five seven six four seven five in two hours forty one minutes. So yeah, by the way, it was a long first set. It was a very very physical first set. So that was part of it. It wasn't just like Alcaraz came into the final completely dead. The match ended up being very physical as well. Uh, did I see any Nori adjustments from Buenos Aires? Question I should probably address. Nothing that was super, super definitive for me. If anything, I felt there may have been a, a different approach with how he was hitting his backhand. I think Nori was definitely protecting the backhand side a little bit better. You can remember that last week. Uh, it's something that I did bring up with Mark Petchy as well, and we agreed that Nori was uh, struggling to protect that backhand side when hitting it cross-court because that short-angled backhand that is usually quite a bother for his opponents because it does tend to stay very, very low, isn't really effective against Carlos Alcaraz, who does a great job, first of all, moving up inside the baseline and cutting off that angle with his footwork, and second of all, with his heavy RPM forehand and immense racket speed, he does a great job of being offensive even from a low contact point from inside the court, which is something that um, others can struggle with. So as a result... That short-angled backhand cross from the lefty Nori into the righty forehand of Alcaraz just isn't very effective. I do feel he changed it up a little bit in this one. I thought he was hitting less angle, more depth, uh, trying to really break the baseline as opposed to breaking the sideline. I think that's the best way to visualize it. Oftentimes, Nori, again, he's taking some pace off and hitting that short angle, trying to break that sideline. Very effective, usually. I think he put that shot away, which was a good idea. It's go, go more central, more through the back of the court, focus on the depth and the pace. And I think by focusing more on the depth and the pace instead of the angle, uh, he was able to not get hurt as much by the Alcaraz forehand when he had to hit his backhand into that side. Make sense? So that's if if that was an adjustment and I'm like, 70% on this one, not positive, not 100, but 70% on that one. If that was an adjustment, then that's the only one that I saw. I felt like uh, where Alcaraz's aggression probably hurt the most, especially digging into the data, I think watching the match, you could, um, well, let me just say what it was first, uh, was, was on the return of serve. I think this was an area where Alcaraz, when compromised physically, was uh, was in a tough spot because the return of serve in the men's game, especially, it's a defensive shot. And with Alcaraz having to hit it as offense, you could see the effects of that. Um, so I'm so I'll tell you this, you know, watching the match, it felt like Alcaraz's offensive returning at times was a positive factor, but I don't think that it quite got to a level where it was making up for all of the missed returns. And certainly in the data set, in a match that was very, very close in terms of, especially in terms of total points, one, a very, very close match, the unreturned serves count really stood out. And uh, keep in mind here, aces were four to four. So aces were even, and that tells you a little bit about the return of serve and the approach on the return of serve. And this disparity is even more meaningful. The disparity that I'm about to tell you about is even more meaningful when you keep in mind that aces were dead even. All right. 
Alcaraz on unreturned serves, uh, on his serve was 18 for 111. Okay, this is the Alcaraz serve, so that means he's getting 16% serves unreturned. This is first serve and second serve combined. Nori was 26 for 100, so he was getting 26% first serves unreturned. So he got an additional 8 free points on 11 less serves. Same number of bases. That means that the ball was on Alcaraz's racket just as much or just as frequently. And Alcaraz was just missing a lot of returns. Why? Because he was trying to be super offensive on it. So there's uh, you know, there's no huge surprise there. I do feel that even before the fatigue set in, in, in a big way, midway through the second set, there were some missed second serve returns from Alcaraz that were uh, that were poor and that kind of reminded me of some of his lesser impressive performances from last year when some some return of serve mistakes in big moments really stood out in some of those losses. This next part I want to be quick on because again I don't think it was really the big determining factor in this match and because of Alcaraz's physical issues it kind of clouds the meaning of this. But I do think we saw a pretty erratic performance on Carlos Alcaraz's backhand. And the reward offensively wasn't really there to make up for it. So I will say that uh, on his forehand, Alcaraz hit 28 winners to 25 unforced errors. On his backhand, he hit 8 winners to 23 unforced errors. Now, look, there's going to be a... Worse ratio on the backhand side. That is to be expected. But still, that number 23 is pretty high on the unforced error count on the Alcaraz backhand. Just something to keep your eye on because last year, especially on clay, this was a thread that we were following. So I just want to kind of bring that back, refresh you. Uh, Zverev at Roland Garros, Sinner in Umag, Musetti in Hamburg. Those were all matches where I felt Alcaraz's backhand was doing more harm than good. And uh, the reason for that, or kind of what I was examining, is is the hard, flat backhand on the rise. When he's hitting it on the rise, is he going for too much? Is he trying to do too much? So it goes back to your decision makers and your intentions. One of the major decision makers is the incoming ball. Is it attackable or is it not attackable? And now you look at intentions. What are we trying to do with this ball? Are we trying to trade? Are we trying to build the point offensively? Are we trying to finish the point altogether? And I think for Alcaraz, there's a lot of instances where I see him taking the ball on the rise from the baseline, which means that the incoming ball has a, a fair amount of depth unless Carlos is really stepping inside the court, which is not really the ball that I'm talking about. I'm saying when he's on the baseline, taking the ball on the rise. It means the incoming ball is fairly decent, right? Otherwise, if it were really short, he'd be hitting on the fall, not on the rise. So on the rise, the incoming ball is good, and I find him still looking to build and finish on clay, on the rise, on his backhand, very flat, lot, not a lot of margin. I think he's asking too much of that shot in that scenario, and my suggestion, I, I suppose you could call it a suggestion or more of a question, really, I, I should really frame it as a question, is should he be taking some pace off and just trading when 
playing his backhand on the rise on clay. Instead of building or looking to finish off that ball, just trade it. I feel like, again, the more he's being offensive off of that shot, uh, the more he's getting himself into trouble. And that even includes sometimes on the second serve return. I, I even think it's a problem on that shot. Nori obviously being a lefty uh, might be able to bring out this issue even more. You know, a heavy topspin forehand cross court is going to put Alcaraz in that position a ton uh, where he's having to play play the backhand on the rise. Uh, I did look into it. I'll end on this. Um, I did look into the, the idea that maybe Alcaraz has a bit of a lefty problem. I just wanted to see. So I looked into it. And I didn't find much. So I want to tell you how I didn't find much because that can be informative in itself. Uh, ATP career win percentage, 77% against righties, 76% against lefties. So there's a one percentage point dip, negligible in my view. Uh, one and two against Nadal, four and two against Cam Nori. So it, it is a positive head-to-head -head against Cam Nori. He did have that insane loss towards the end of 2021. Uh, against Hugo Gaston at the Paris Masters, which was more of a mental freakout than anything technical. Uh, Ramos Vinolas almost beat him at Roland Garros. That was a match that was way too close for comfort. And uh, Draper almost got him in Basel towards the end of last year. Alcaraz was not in form at that time, uh, but nonetheless, another result where he's, he's almost losing to a lefty as a favorite. Uh, ultimately, just looking at all of that, I feel like making that argument that Alcaraz has a lefty problem would be a force. I don't think there's enough good evidence there uh, to make that argument. All right, let's move on. Daniil Medvedev winning the second title in back-to-back -back weeks. He beats Andy Murray in the final of Doha. He beat Felix again this week, second straight week beating FAA. That that head-to-head, -head, by the way, is... Is 6-0 to Medvedev against Felix. Comes down to, I think, the return of serve more than anything. And uh, the defense. But uh, I do want to point this out. It took Medvedev last year until October to get to two titles. It's February, and he's already at two titles. It's positive. On the Andy Murray side of things, before we get into this match, uh, Andy Murray was... A big story throughout the week. There's no doubt about that. Just like he was in the first week of the Australian Open. We've seen as his dominance wanes, the warrior spirit that he possesses has only come into sharper focus. And it's been a pleasure to watch. On this particular run, eight match points saved and route to the final. Uh, some of them uh, against Lorenzo Sinego in the first round. And then uh, several more of them against Yuri Lahechka in the semifinal. Wins both of those matches, making him 6-0. 6-0 in deciding sets this year. Three of them came in tie breaks. And in each of those matches where he won in deciding set tie breaks, one of them was a fifth against Berrettini, which you probably remember. In each of them, he faced match points. So... I'm going to go back to something that I said during the Australian Open, and the evidence just continues to compile that this is the case. There is now hard evidence that Andy Murray is much improved from last year in the fitness department. 
and 2021. And he said that coming out of the offseason. He said, I worked harder this offseason. I am in better shape. And we are very, very much seeing that because as much as you might feel like there are still some concerning signs that continue to remind you that Andy Murray is not who he used to be. You're continuously reminded of that. You know, maybe it's the fact that he didn't beat uh, Alexander Muller in straights this week. And in 2016, he would have. Sure. Uh, but all that said, last year, the year before, none of this would have been possible. None of this would have been possible. I guarantee it. I am so sure of it that Andy Murray did not have the fitness to do what he has done this year in the last couple of years. The negative, I just kind of alluded to it, is he has yet to win a match in straight sets this year. So 6-0 in deciding sets, but yet to win a match in straights. 6-3 and three overall, in case you're wondering. High quality final here. Let's get into it. I thought both men were hitting the ball great. And to me, it was an extremely close match. Both sets were very close. I thought game in and game out, there was a, a lot of competition. And in the second set, you could argue that Murray was more consistently applying pressure on the Medvedev serve than vice versa. You can make a good argument for that. I think total points won might have been might have been a tie in the second set, actually, which would have been a result of that. Doesn't really matter, but it also tells you something about uh, just how close it was. Was the Murray fatigue a factor? Let's just start there. I was mostly impressed with the Murray fitness once again, but I did see some evidence that uh, that he was compromised. I mostly wonder about the let up that we saw from Andy uh, at four all in the second set, forty love up, because there were three unforced errors in a row there, but the first two in particular looked tired. And a fresh player can play every point the same. A fresh player has the ability to do that. A tired player is much more affected by the scoreboard insofar as they are consistently looking for an opportunity to dip into energy conservation. And just looking at the errors that Murray made from up 40 love in that game, it did feel like he looked at the scoreboard, he saw 40 love, and he completely let up. And that to me is a telltale sign of a player who is tired in the second set. There might have been some other moments where you could point to, but that was the one that stood out to me. I thought, technically speaking, uh, the Medvedev serve certainly seemed to function as a separator in this match. The first set in particular, it could have been a completely different story had Medvedev not been so clutch on his serve. Uh, because Murray had break points in three separate games in the first set. He would uh, break serve in one of those three. In the fourth game and the eighth game, in both of them, he had uh, two break points to be exact. And on all four of those points, Medvedev found first serves. Uh, he got two unreturned, and he got two plus one sitters. So that right there in a close first set makes all the difference. Murray didn't really seem to have that. There were not a lot of uh, moments I felt Murray, big spot, serve, bails him out. Not really a part of the equation here, but for Medvedev, it certainly was. And again, especially in the first set. Then in the second set, uh, to Murray's credit, 
he, uh, well, I should say this. First set, Murray was down 4-1 and really did mount a good comeback. And a lot of that was by upping the aggression and coming forward more, more serve and volley, aggressive second serve returning. And in the second set, he continued that. He continued what was working in the first set, especially when it comes to net rushing. The second set was constant net charging for Murray. Constant. But unfortunately for Andy, the efficiency fell off a cliff. In the first set, Murray was 12 of 13, net points won. In the second set, it dipped down to 6 of 16. 6 of 16. That's awful. Awful. Now, he was losing these net points in a wide variety of ways, which is actually a good thing. I know that sounds almost like a, a, a bad thing for Andy. It's not. It's actually a good thing. If he was losing them all the same way, then you could criticize. Didn't go his way, but at least you don't make the same mistake over and over again. So uh, I saw some poor approach shots. I saw some great Medvedev passing shots. And I saw some bad volleys. The only thing I didn't really see was uh, irresponsible decisions. I didn't see any instances where Murray came forward and I felt the the opportunity was not there. There were no net approaches that I felt, oh, Andy should have stayed back. That was not smart to go to go forward. All right. So, but other than that, I saw a, a mixed bag. Bad approaches, bad volleys, great Medvedev passing shots. Uh, and that all kind of resulted in six of 16. But that was definitely the story of the second set. It swung it. And I, I mean, we can even look at some big moments here. Here is Murray's first break point of the second set. And he hits a good forehand approach shot down the line here with Medvedev off the center of the court. And uh, I did like how Andy was flattening out his forehand in this one. Nice penetration, good location close to the sideline. And this one is in the bag of incredible Medvedev passing shots. Uh, I, I drew kind of a yellow dot where the ball landed. It was so shallow in the court that it was, uh, based on this camera angle, it was almost hard to see the tennis ball because it, it, you would have had to look through the net. Uh, yeah, unbelievable angle here by Medvedev off of what was a really good approach shot, and there's absolutely nothing Murray could have done. And as a result, uh, Medvedev goes up 3-1 in this second set instead of it being... To all Now, Murray ultimately uh, does get the break of serve back, as you can see uh, later on in this, um, later on in the set, it is now for all. And here, Murray has uh, just made three unforced errors in a row. Uh, again, I, I talked about the first two being very, very tired slash lazy looking from up 40 love. And now it's deuce and Murray is back locked in and now it's okay. Uh, let's get back to what we want to do here, which is hit great approaches and come forward against Medvedev's defense. And he does that once again. He kind of wrong foots Medvedev. And uh, there's a lot of pace on this backhand, and there's good depth. And you can see Medvedev is pretty off balance at the point of contact. Uh, I mean, look at this shot. I mean, this is classic Medvedev. What, what the hell is he doing over there technically? Who knows? But uh, it works really, really well. Uh, he, he bounces it. At Murray's feet. And just to get this passing shot to bounce is really what you're going for here. And uh, it's a terrific job by Medvedev. 
uh, Murray's half volley uh, was was going to need to be really, really, really great. Anything mediocre was was going to be punished because you can see Medvedev from this position. He knows it's a drop volley. There's there's no chance that it's anything other than a drop volley. So he's already sprinting forward, and anything that isn't perfect is going to be is going to be really bad news. So uh, Murray's half volley it's not awesome, and Medvedev actually is going to go straight at Murray, completely pegs him, hit, hits him in the ass, actually, and wins the point to earn a break point. This is the break point. So this is the very next point, and Andy is in again. And this time, he actually gives himself, a, a, or gets himself, I should say, a rather routine volley and just doesn't do enough with it. Actually, he misses it. I'm sorry. He misses this one completely, and that's the break of serve. You could look at match point where Andy has a, a volley that looks very similar to that one. It's pretty uh, routine, and he doesn't do enough with it. And then he's tight in, on, tight in on the net, and then he gets lobbed. It's another net point lost. If you watch the second set over and over and over and over again, it's the same thing. It's Murray losing from offensive positions because he's coming forward, and he's either getting past... It's either a bad approach, it's either a bad volley, or it's either too good for Medvedev. That 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 was the set, really, truly. The only thing I'll add on this is it, it does. It is a reminder that you do have to be fairly exceptional at net in order to expect to beat Medvedev at his best by implementing you know the the net rushing strategy that is very attractive as a counter to the way he returns and defends. You do have to be excellent. And I, I I kept saying that over and over and over again last summer when Tsitsipas beat him that way and when Kyrgios beat him that way. Uh, it, it was just something where, look, there were a lot of volleys in this one that Andy didn't put away or that Andy missed that that Nick, who is, is a better volleyer than Murray, uh, he wouldn't have missed that. Or, or Tsitsipas, who I think is a slightly better volleyer than Murray, probably would have done a little bit better with uh, or at least hit better forehand approach shots, which could have made the difference in the case of Pass. So it is hard. It is not a, a free ticket to paradise just coming forward against Medvedev. So even in a match like the one that Yannick Sinner lost in Rotterdam, where I'm saying, how did he? How does he stop coming forward? Uh, even though I, I think that criticism is is very much fair on, on my end when you're losing set 6-2, uh, it, it does not mean that when you do something like what Andy Murray did in the second set, which is get forward at every opportunity possible, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have enough success to ultimately win it. All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, first set it did work. He was 12 of 13. So there's there's also that. Um, same thing as last week for Medvedev ending on this, where I just felt like there was great baseline potency from Daniil. And if there's anything in his game that... I've seen different these last couple weeks from last year. It is certainly, A, number one, the mental focus and composure. But the second thing is the offense off of the ground, which has always been the main barometer of uh, Daniil Medvedev's game and and his success. Uh, but in this case, I felt like the weight of shot on the forehand Really stood out in this match. Really stood out. Uh, Medvedev statistically, when I went to check on the Infosys side of things, 
finished the match with 12 finishes on the forehand, which is winners and forced errors combined, to one unforced error. Murray, who I also thought was trying to flatten out his forehand and hit it as as big as he can, which in this case was actually pretty big. I think Murray was, was hitting his forehand big. Uh, Murray had 15 finishes, three more than Medvedev, but 10 unforced errors, not nearly the consistency. Overall, I was just very impressed with Medvedev's forehand in this match, and I thought offensively, he was terrific. The only thing where you know he got himself into trouble sometimes was trying to finish with his backhand drop shot. That particular shot lost him some really big points from important positions, or important points from uh, offensive positions. But other than that, I felt the offense was there. And that's been a, a big thing for Medvedev. I just like to see him succeeding at all three levels, defense, neutral, and offense. All right, that'll do it for this week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time.